1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: I'm Stephen Pimpare, host of the Public Policy Channel. And I am pleased today to welcome Richard McGahee, author of Unequaled Cities, Overcoming Anti-Urban Bias to Reduce Inequality in the United States, new from Columbia University Press. Rick, welcome. Good to have you with us here today. Great. Great to be here. Um, So why don't we start off by I'm going to ask you to tell us just a little bit about yourself and your background um, and what it is that brought you to this particular project.
2: Sure, I'm an urban economist uh, with a lot of experience in public policy and philanthropic work. And what brought me to it was seeing the ways that mainstream urban economics gets some things right about cities, but gets an awful lot wrong. And so the book is an attempt to engage both with urban economics and see if we can make it a better, more relevant discipline, but also to provide advice to policymakers and the general public who want to know about cities. Um, can you tell folks just a little bit about the kinds of, of jobs you've held? Because I think
0: that's relevant to the way that you're thinking about this.
2: Sure. I've been a senior official at city, state, and the federal government. I was a deputy controller in New York City. Uh, I uh, In Washington, I worked both in Congress and in the executive branch. I was the Staff Director for the Joint Economic Committee of the Congress and Economic Advisor to Senator Edward Kennedy, Assistant Secretary of Policy at the U.S. Labor Department. And then I was also a senior program officer and head of uh, impact assessment for the Ford Foundation with a portfolio in urban areas. Terrific.
0: Um, so why don't we start with like some really like stupid basic stuff, right? So, uh For folks who may not think about this stuff on a regular basis, uh, what's the difference between, say, a city and a metropolitan area, and what is it that makes cities special or
2: distinct? Yeah, you put your finger on a really important part of our discourse that's messed up about cities, which is that we interchangeably talk about cities as the core city within a metropolitan area, usually surrounded by suburbs, many of them hostile to the city, or we talk about the city itself, and they're not the same thing. The the metro area corresponds roughly to, I think, the regional economy of a city, but the core city at its center is what anchors and drives economic prosperity and growth that the suburbs really depend on. So a lot of the book is around this tension between the things that, and there's one thing urban economics gets right, that cities are the hubs of innovation, progress, and growth, but ignores the distributional and pernicious and often racialized effects of our metropolitan form with suburbs and a central city. And what is it about cities that make them drivers in that way? They drive because they, they do a couple of things. Most prominently, they're the sources of innovation and growth. There's other growth things that you get from cities just by people crowding into them, and that puts customers near each other. But that sparks innovation. And I think in recent uh, urban economics led by edward glazer in particular from harvard there's been a i think a correct emphasis on cities as these hubs of innovation that's where new ideas come from that's where growth gets sparked uh the book is full of stories about this so you think about the growth of the auto industry in detroit detroit had two prior existing industries that mattered they repaired ship engines because detroit is on the great lakes And they were a big hub for agricultural produce. People brought things in in wagons. And eventually, someone got the idea, hey, why don't we put one of those motors in one of those wagons and see what it does? Hundreds of people were trying this, Henry Ford being one of the real successes that came out of trying to figure out how to do this. Ford was a part-time mechanic at a ship engine repair place. his real genius was how to organize the production, but they called them horseless carriages, right? They didn't think of this. They think if we put motors in these wheeled things, they'll move them around. And it's a great example, I think, of innovation. It wouldn't have happened without the city of Detroit and its prior existing uh, economic uh, industries. It took somebody smart to find a way to put the new things together, and that's innovation.
0: But, but one of the, uh, let's call it an, an irony that you point to is that we've got these, these cities that are the drivers of economic growth for their metropolitan region, but also do not necessarily uh, reap the principal benefits from that uh, uh, distinctiveness. And one of the central themes of the book um, are often sites of extraordinary inequality yes so can sort of talking at the general level what should we know about that dynamic
2: what's going on there in general terms well let's uh, what's happened is what an economist would call externalities that the the suburbs get the benefits of the growth and they don't pay the costs fully they have separate school districts they have separate taxing districts they're allowed to grow in that way they're often racialized and so you get racial segregation uh, they, through zoning, can prevent the building of multifamily housing, so you can't get apartment buildings or cheaper housing in the area. And then over time, uh, hostility develops between the two sets politically. There's no natural reason that we have this form. The City of London is six times, the, and I don't mean the financial city, I mean London itself as a metropolitan area, is six times the physical size of New York City. There's no logical or natural reason why our cities or our metropolitan areas are formed this way they're through deliberate choices around policy uh which often have unfortunately in the united states a strong racial tinge to them and as you point out right some of our
0: very sort of foundational systems themselves build in not just that that uh, racial bias but the the regional bias as well i mean you know sort of the the Representation of the Senate, and we can make a very long list here about the ways, right, yeah. in which in which we disadvantage those those drivers of growth that are concentrations of people who are arguably not equitably represented in those decision making institutions, yeah. right?
2: That's right. And America has, uh, as the book documents, a long standing. This is not something that just happened with the growth of suburbs. is a long standing anti urban bias. Uh, Thomas Jefferson considered them a pestilence. Uh, He once said that during a yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia that, well, it might have some good effects, I'm paraphrasing, because it'll kill off a bunch of the people that live in the city. So there's been a strong anti-urban bias from the country's founding reflected in our governmental structures right and we see, i mean we see that sort of really profoundly in like
0: late 1800s 19 early 19th uh, the late 19th century um just around as cities start to grow we've got this, we developed this this rhetoric about the dangers of them how unhealthy it is right we start to right. see so, the fresh air funds right the idea that in order yeah. for children to be healthy they have to leave the city because the city itself yeah. is the danger and the source of all kinds of evils
2: yeah, cities were bad, we're, were not healthy places in the late 19th century, but we also had public health that invented, right. you know, water and sewage in particular, overcame that. You don't have to go back to the 19th century without getting partisan here. Donald Trump, a feature of his campaign in 2016 uh, is to call cities hellholes, you know, horrible crime ridden, immigrant, disease ridden hellholes that everyone should be scared of and uh, stay away from.
0: Yeah. um so there are, are three case studies that that form the core of the book, uh New York, Detroit, and Los Angeles. Why don't we, uh why don't you, if you would talk a little bit about each of those cases in turn? Let's start with New York. What should we what's the story of New York that you think is important for us to know as we're mm-hmm. thinking about these these sort of relationships between levels of government and about the uh, uh income and wealth inequality?
2: Right. Well, for all three cities, I was interested. And here are cities that were aware of this inequality problem that they're breeding and tried to do something about it on their own through public policy, primarily taxation, regulation, a bunch of things. And all of them, I think I have to say, by and large, failed to make much of a dent in it. so I was interested in that paradox, even how much could cities actually accomplish working on their own against these structural forces? So New York is a great story. Uh, the My tale of it starts with uh, virtual bankruptcy in 1975. New York didn't declare bankruptcy, but it was one signature away from doing it. And it did that because its finances simply could not keep up with the social welfare expenditures that it wanted to maintain. And so it resorted to lots of budget skullduggery, moving things around, uh, using operating expenses and capital expenses indiscriminately and not planning and then it just got over leveraged. It couldn't handle the expenses that it taken on its own. While its surrounding suburbs were growing very vigorous tax bases, property tax bases that New York City itself couldn't access. It couldn't access the schools that those property tax bases uh, provided, and was constantly fighting with his state government. I think one of the things for the books that may surprise people is that I may view state governments in the long run as hostile to cities. We we can find places, California and others, where they seem pro-city, but by and large, state governments have been the enemies of cities, I think, particularly as they try and address inequality. So New York went, entered a period of austerity that, that to some extent has never really come out of it. It went through massive industrial change. One of New York's great strengths is is its ability to reinvent itself. It was a big manufacturing center. That declined. It reinvented itself as a financial center, probably increasing inequality as it did that because of the way that the finance industry is structured and the kind of consumption that that breeds, but still managed to keep a healthy economy running. Mayor Bill de Blasio got elected on a tale of two cities fighting inequality. A lot of that was around policing and criminal justice and not so much on economics. Uh, if I have a criticism of New York's uh, economics, and this will tee us up for Los Angeles, it's that it doesn't focus directly on these economic issues. It often tends to be about criminal justice, extremely important and extremely volatile, and housing costs, also important. But there's never been a coherent progressive movement around improving the quality of the economy.
0: Let's hang there for just a moment, because... Why? Right. What's why? I mean, we've got right big blue city, right, as as sort of liberal and progressive a place, arguably, as you would want to inhabit all sorts of people working toward inclusive policies that would reduce inequality Mm -hmm. along economic lines, along racial lines, et cetera, et cetera. And yet they don't seem to be able to achieve
2: progress. What's your explanation for that? What do you think is going on? In New York, I fear that progressives have become too focused on uh, distribution after the fact, that the there's plenty of wealth, we just have to redistribute it. That's not, and I consider myself a progressive economist, but you can't ignore production and what the city's, kind of, what kind of jobs it's actually going to produce and what kind of sort of output it's actually going to produce. You certainly need good labor market regulation, you need minimum wages, you need fair labor treatment, you need decent schools, all of those things. Uh, And I think also then the policing tension issues have mattered a lot in New York and take people's attention. And then the scholars like John Mullenkoff at the City University will point to New York, one of New York's great economic strengths is its continual inflow of immigrants. One of the less visible things that that sometimes does is to leave the immigrants in more or less isolated ethnic pockets, and that's where their politics form around. So it's been hard to form a citywide movement around economic equity that also focuses on production. Um, So why don't we now turn our attention to Los
0: Angeles, because you argue that L.A. has, to some extent, succeeded in overcoming some of that what Balkanization of of those yeah, kinds yeah. of of lefty lefty interest groups um tell us what we what how should we be thinking about Los Angeles in this regard uh
2: as hopeful but not as a, an, an automatic solution to, so the LA experience really in my in my book starts with the Rodney King uh urban violence and riots after king uh, an african american Uh, A person in a traffic stop was beaten within an inch of his life by the police. It was captured on video. The city exploded uh, uh, with violence, hundreds dead, billions of dollars in property loss and troops sent in to handle it. And people in Los Angeles, uh, members of the union movement, but also community groups said, we are in trouble here. We've got to do something to really address this fragmentation and hostility in the city. And so it formed through a series of organizations. Uh, the one I feature is Los Angeles Alliance for the New Economy, but there are many others, Bus Riders Union and that, very consciously said, we've got to get a, an organization that talks about these social and racial dimensions and policing and talks about the economy, that those have to be central to what we're doing. And what they were able to do was form a a kind of triangular alliance between three major groups as communities of color that wanted jobs and prosperity, kind of a producerist part of the world, which included a lot of labor unions, but also some developers, some private developers, and environmentalists who historically and still often are in California anti-growth. They don't want expansion. And those three groups working together came around several projects, major urban renewal projects like the Staples uh, Center, the one i like to point to really is the building of the L.A. metro. So in California, you can't raise the tax, uh, a tax on the ballot as the legacy of Proposition 13 without a two-thirds approval rating. In the middle of a recession, 2008, Los Angeles County voted two-thirds in favor of raising its sales tax to devote 30, so a huge amount of money uh, to building the L.A. metro system. And the metro system wasn't just the rail lines, which was pleasing to the environmentalists and others. It also had strong labor agreements so that the jobs would be unionized, and the unions, in turn, made very conscious plans to include and diversify their workforce, to include young minority, Muslim men, who had been excluded from, the, from good jobs. So all three groups got something out of it, none of which they would have been able to get on their own. And that, to me, is the hopeful sign in Los Angeles. It, 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 the structural factors on inequality make it hard for any one city to move the needle on the economy. But this ability to form coalitions uh, and be effective politically and economically is the hopeful part of L.A. Um, so let's talk about
1: Detroit. Um... Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's like it feels well, you tell me it feels like that's the antithesis of hopeful, but tell me how you think about where Detroit has been, how
2: it got to where it is. Yeah. Yeah. I did foundation work for the Ford Foundation in Detroit. And there are so many people there that work hard and care about Detroit and are working at it that I feel I, I so admire what they try to do. But I do think Detroit is a case of when it goes wrong, it really goes wrong. Uh the key to understanding Detroit is twofold. It's the decline of the auto industry or rather the dispersion of it. Although even uh, when the auto industry was growing, you could see some of this city versus suburb pattern emerging. There wasn't a new auto plant built in the city of Detroit in its political boundaries after 1937 until the 1970s. So, So the plants went outside the city's direct control. Some of that's technological. It's easier to build a, a assembly line plant on one story with rail lines. But a lot of it was that, that the auto companies wanted to control the towns they were in. Henry Ford famously built River Rouge, his integrated plant. It was a separate political jurisdiction. His cousin was the mayor of Dearborn, uh, where the Ford headquarters were. So this ability to create these little pocket cities uh, isolated the city. And then you get real fierce racial hostility uh, in the region for reasons that are documented, but still, I think, quite hard to understand how it got so got so bad. You had the United Auto Workers in Detroit, a progressive union that was inclusive for blacks. Blacks still had the worst jobs in the United Auto plants. So it didn't solve their problems. They still had the most dangerous jobs. Uh, jobs in the paint shop and other things, but they had higher incomes. If you compare uh, black incomes in the 1950s in Detroit to the rest of the country, Detroit was either first or second highest for median African-American earnings while still being behind whites. But the union had some positive effects that way. The loss of the auto industry really hurt them. Detroit is a a big city. It's a gigantic footprint if you haven't been there. You can fit San Francisco, Boston, and Manhattan Island into the boundary of Detroit. So you're delivering, and at its peak, it was about two and a half million people. It's probably under 700,000 by now or hovering around that. So the city, as the population declined, had much more trouble just delivering basic services across that footprint, police, fire, sanitation, education, utilities. Uh, and you could—they were unable to consolidate it politically. That's quite difficult. Interestingly, people think the whole region collapsed. It didn't. The region grew slightly most of that time in populations. The city of Detroit that imploded at the center, while the suburbs grew slightly in population. So it's not like the whole industry, the whole region, got pulled down. And then just you get this really bitter. Uh, racial conflict. Uh, the, the, the Detroit city. Detroit's one of the most segregated metros in the United States. I think Milwaukee's worse, but uh, and that just played itself out in all sorts of ways. Opportunistic politicians, somewhat on both sides, but I would say, in my analysis, especially on the white side in the suburbs, really exploited the racial issue uh, and made that made it extremely hard to achieve any regional cooperation
0: and there were there were a, a number of efforts at 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 recreating detroit and finding new opportunities for economic growth is it fair to say that many of those turned out to be boondoggles
2: I don't know about boondoggles. I, I worked on some of those for the Ford Foundation. So, uh, <laughs> I well, boondoggles suggested a lot of waste or even corruption. I don't think it was that. They it did just, not achieve what folks hoped they achieve would They didn't achieve what they hoped they would. You just couldn't scale it. Uh, the city, by its own, couldn't scale those things. I think there were, were there embedded old interests. Yeah, let's bring back the auto industry. Let's bring back some of this. And Detroit still has a role to play in that. But uh, the state didn't help. The suburbs didn't help and were sometimes actively hostile. A, a Notorious uh, elected official Brooks Patterson from Oakland County, which borders Detroit on the north, had a 30-year successful career just race-baiting the city of Detroit. Uh, he once famously said, we're going to treat Detroit like an Indian reservation. Sorry for that incorrect term. We're going to put a fence around and throw corn and blankets in over the fence. Uh, and this is uh, one of the leading elected officials in the region who won with big margins. So Was reelected uh, was right. after having said that out loud. Yes, having loud. said that. That's I right. Guess. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And Patterson, Patterson got his start fighting uh integration of the school systems in the metropolitan area and a five to four supreme court decision said that uh uh, this affected the whole country but it was a detroit-based decision that you couldn't bus kids out of the central city to suburban schools uh, unless you had really direct overt, clear statements about that they were doing it for racially discriminatory reasons which they were but they weren't stupid enough to have that uh, on the roll. So, so it pushed all those problems back into the city. The city wasn't managed well, its property tax base shrunk. And then you get this kind of downward spiral, right? leading to the largest municipal bankruptcy in American history.
0: So so what do we do about it, right? Is there, what, what can cities do? Is there a recipe for all three of these and other cities confronting similar problems? Are the problems unique to each location? What should what should cities be doing either collectively or on a case-by-case yeah. basis? Yeah.
2: There's some things they can do. They won't solve the whole problem. Uh, they should stop and I think progressives in particular should stop fighting development. They should get they should get things from development. Again, looking to the Los Angeles case, the uh, Staples Center in Los Angeles pioneered the use of what are called community benefit agreements, where the organized community said, we have enough political muscle to stop your deal, but we want things from it. We want jobs, we want housing, we want parks. And if we can get those in enforceable deals, then we will help you with the development. If you compare that to New York's rejection of the Amazon second headquarters or the industry city deal, it was just like a no development stance. That's not, that's not going to help. Similar argument for housing. We need housing construction, as much of it affordable as possible, negotiate with developers. But an anti-development stance, uh, just a pure redistribution stance, is not going to help these cities grow. If they're in states that will let them do favorable things, uh, they should do it, better labor regulation, Better minimum wages, better labor law. A lot of states won't. One of the, again, I think the hidden things for people is how much power states have over cities. States states virtually control everything a city can do. So Missouri, two big cities, St. Louis and Kansas City, both cities passed a minimum wage increase. The Missouri state legislature overturned those increases. And pass a law saying no city in the state of Missouri is allowed to raise its minimum wage without state approval. That's in more states than you would like to think. The Economic Policy Institute says over 40 U.S. states have some kind of anti-labor regulation that prevents cities from taking action. So that then leads you to say then cities need to get some leverage on their state governments and California, I think, is, again, for all its Michigan in some ways, is a hopeful example of doing that, that building strong progressive movements in California, Southern California, not just Los Angeles, but even Orange County and other places. Orange County, of course, is famously where Ronald Reagan came out of that region, is now pretty blue and pretty blue on labor issues. Uh, and the state is that way. They, they have their blind spots, particularly on housing construction, I think. But that's probably a longer run trajectory that's, that states have to look for. Uh, they, I don't think cities can. There are things they can do that can make their city better, but they can't fully solve these problems on their own.
0: Um, anything you think can be done at the national
2: level? Same thing. The the you've got to get coalitions that eventually build up enough. That you alluded to it before. This national system, and we see it all the time, is rigged against large cities with urban uh, urban formations. And for every California, there's a Texas. So uh, if you look in Texas, the Texas triangle of Dallas, Fort Worth at the top, San Antonio, Austin on one side, and Houston on the other, produces about 75% of state's GDP. We all think it's oil, uh, but it's not. And they have close to 70% of the state's population, but they have very little power in the state government. So internally within Texas, it's gerrymandered and there's a lot of control that holds the cities down. And that in turn leads that state to be an a, a anti-urban force at the national level. Uh, the electoral college is also famously tilted towards, particularly the Senate as well, towards smaller states, smaller anti-urban states. And that's a tough one to overcome, I think.
0: Um, you've talked a, a little bit about, about positive developments in L.A.? Is there anything else you see going on anywhere that that gives you some hope or that you think people might usefully look to as a model for what they might, how they might reorient their own thinking and own activism
2: in their own locales? Yeah, I think a lot of places, the housing debate is the really interesting one now, and you're seeing a lot of faster movement than I thought we would yeah. on trying to create and build more housing that's been in the grip of uh, uh, so-called nimbys not in my backyards who oftentimes are single-family homeowners who are worried about what it's going to do to their property values and don't want to build new housing but uh, they have some rights that should be respected and try and include them but they shouldn't be allowed to dominate uh that we have a national housing crisis now a non-order failure because we haven't built anything for 10 years and I'm I'm pleasantly surprised and somewhat hopeful that we'll move faster on these building uh, issues. I because I do think with proper, uh, sometimes people on progressive say, well, we can't. It's just all luxury housing, you know, and and none of that will trickle down to the. To other housing. There's lots of good research that shows that increasing housing it supply does. lowers yeah. rents. It lowers yeah. rents. And, and cities can then can be aggressive and say to developers, okay, we want a certain percentage of this to be affordable and locked in as affordable. And you see how much how far you can press that before the developer says it's not economically worthwhile. Right. I see that going on in a lot of states and cities now. And so that's that's very uh hopeful to me. I think. Oddly, uh, an important thing for all city health and for our national economic health is really a push to get more immigrants back in. We've had a huge decline in immigration. Cities have been depopulating a little, but there's always people who move out of cities who've usually repopulated them with immigrants. And between Trump's immigration policies and the effects of COVID, which closed the borders for a couple of years, it really cut off a lifeline to new urban growth. We want immigrants to come in, and they tend to go to cities. So uh, pressing for better uh, and uh, growing immigration populations would help a lot. And then I think there's real strong uh, movements towards equity in a a variety of spaces, Uh, wages, housing, jobs, uh, small business contracting. Those are valuable and I think can be done in ways that don't choke off economic growth. It's what mainstream economists would tell you they would do. But I think we can do a lot more on Distributing the benefit, uh, equitably distributing the benefits of economic growth to uh, people who have been excluded.
0: This is the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network. And we have been speaking today with Rick McGahey about his new book, Unequal Cities Overcoming Anti Urban Bias to Reduce Inequality in the United States from Columbia University Press. Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me.